start this recording. Let's take your Bibles this morning and turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This will be the second message on 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And like the previous message, this one is entitled uh, the same, Every Believer's Hope. This will be part two. Hopefully, by God's grace, I know Jeremy's watching this morning. He'll let me know uh, whether or not we have a echo chamber going on <laughs> this morning. I, he said it run well in the first hour, so hopefully, by God's grace, it'll run well in this hour. I tell you, I, you know, there, there are certain parts of the Word of God I know that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, all of it in its entirety from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Uh, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God, the woman of God might be perfectly furnished, truly furnished unto every good work. I know and understand that. But there are certain chapters and certain verses that to the individual saints of God just have a special meaning. I think 2 Corinthians 5 means so much to me is because the first time I heard the gospel, I heard it from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through verse 21. And I think especially verse 21. I think that, that I don't remember all of the details of when I sat down that night to listen to that tape because it's been so many years ago now. But I think that the thing that caught me as we started, I was keying in like all religious people did. I was wanting to know what he was going to have to say about 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. And he didn't start there. I mean, he read it. That ain't where he started. He started over at verse 21, which it's going to take several more weeks to get there. But all of this is leading up to that particular culmination. It, this, these chapters, chapter 4 and chapter 5, unlike what religion tries to teach it, it is not about the new birth. These chapters are about redemption. These chapters are about reconciliation. These chapters, these words, like the entirety of the Word of God, is how God can be just and justify the ungodly. That's the theme of our message. That's the gospel that we're sent to preach. Paul said, Woe be unto me if I preach not the gospel. Folks, the gospel is a specific message. You know that. It's got nothing to do with teaching people how to do right. If you don't know how to do right, if, if somebody's got to tell you how to do right, something's wrong with you to begin with. Even lost, immoral people, they know how to do right. They just don't do right. We know how to do right, but like Paul, what do we tragically have to say? I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. The good I want to do, I don't do. The evil I don't want to do, that's exactly what I find myself doing. But I want to begin with this, because I, I thought about this a long time. I, you know, I always spend the first part of the week just trying to come up with how to start a message. And a, a question came into my mind as I got to thinking about these verses that we're going to cover this morning. We're going to cover verses 5 through verse 8. And the question is this, do we really believe? And I want you to ask yourself this question this morning. 
Do we really believe and do we truly have confidence that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose? Do we truly believe that? Do we have confidence in that? And by all things, now this is what's important. When we say all things work together, by all things, I mean everything. I mean absolutely everything, which includes, listen, every, as Ken played a moment ago, every minute detail of every moment that transpires in this world as well as in our individual lives. All of it works together for good. When I think about, and that, that's a promise of our God. This is not something that's just, everybody I know religiously, especially when somebody in their family dies, you know what they quote? Now, this worked out for good. I'll tell you what, everything in, our, in the believer's life is for good. Heck, we can go further than that. Everything in this world walks and works out for good. And when I think about this glorious promise of our God, I always think back. You know who comes into my mind? Joseph and his family and his life, which includes all the sordid details of the evil hatred and betrayal of his brothers when they sold him into slavery, destroyed the coat of many colors that his daddy had given him because his daddy made a mistake. His daddy loved Joseph more than he loved the other ones. That's a problem. But all of this is on purpose. And then they turned around. What did they do? They went to Jacob and told Jacob, what have, what's happened to Joseph? A lion ate him. He's gone. And, you know, they, they sold that. You think about it, sold their brother to a bunch of traveling vagabonds that carried him down to Egypt. And I tell you, I, it doesn't tell us how old Joseph was. He had to be, of you know, 18, 19, 20 years of age because he was able to go around on his own because his brothers were out in the field and he went out to... Hope that didn't affect him. I just hit that mic with my hand when I spoke. He he was able to travel by himself to go out to where they were at. So being a young man, I know he had young man thoughts and ideas. He probably had plans and aspirations. I know he had told his brethren that at some point in time, what's going to happen to y'all? Where did he get that promise from? God told him. He was just relaying the truth of God to his brethren. And I'm pretty sure going through the experience when he was thrown into that pit waiting for them to take him. And when he got up there and he got into the good favor of Potiphar and he thought, well, this is, this is not bad. And then Potiphar's wife lies about him, tries to get him to sin against his God, lies about him and he gets Potiphar who loved him formerly now is angry with him and throws him into prison. And then he goes in there and he interprets the dreams of those guys and says, when y'all are delivered, when you're delivered, remember me. And they forgot him. So I don't know how long he's been down in there. I'm pretty sure that the whole time he went through that experience, he wasn't whistling while he worked. He wasn't down in there thinking, boy, this is just, this is the Lord's will. Huh? Now you'd hope we, he, we should. He should have. But folks, you got to get your mind right on these people. These people were human beings. Men and women of like passion, just like you and me. Who when things go wrong, 
we don't just throw our hands up and say, Hallelujah, praise the Lord, everything's perfect, wonderful, and all this is going to work out for my good. That's easier said than done. Yet, when it was all over, at the end of the road, when it came to its final conclusion, that which God had purposed and determined, and Joseph has ascended from the, 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 the pit that he was originally thrown in to where he is the governor. You hear me? He is the governor over Egypt, second only to one person. The only one that had any rule or dominion over Joseph was Pharaoh himself. And his evil brothers, and that's what they were. They were evil devils is what they were. His evil brothers stood before him. Israel's dead. Jacob has died. And they thought that the protection all along for them was Israel, Jacob. Who was protecting them all that time? Who was watching over them? Jacob was. I mean, Joseph was. Huh? He could have rightfully had them all killed. And his daddy all couldn't have done nothing about it. He could have had Jacob put to death. So in essence, he was, he, he, he was a picture of who? Messiah. The Lord Jesus Christ. And so now Israel's dead and they stand before Jacob and now they think the only one that's been protecting us is gone. Now, Joseph's fixing to get his revenge. He's fixing to wipe us out and our families and everything about us. And by God-given faith, Joseph says to them, looks at them in their fear, and he says, Fear not, for I am I in the place of God. But as for you, listen to this, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good. Why, Joseph? to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. And folks, he wasn't talking about Egyptians. He was talking about the nation of Israel that had been brought up there. And folks, it's about to thrive in the midst of an evil and adulterous generation. Now here's the question. In, in Young's literal, here's that verse. Fear not, for I am, for am I in the place of God. As for you, you devised evil against me. God devised it for good. In order to do as at this day to keep alive a numerous people. Here's the question. How could Joseph so confidently make that statement? How could he do that? Well, how, how can you and I have such confidence in the face of what at times outwardly appears to you and me to be utter chaos in our lives. How can we make that kind of statement? Tell what, he had the same hope we have. He had a promise of God. It was made to his great-great-grandfather Abraham who the scriptures call the father of us all. What, what was the promise made to him? 
Abraham believed God. What do you believe? It, though the, you can count the stars in heaven or the sand of the she, seashore, your children will outnumber them all. Huh? Based on what? The one that Abraham was looking for. The promised Messiah. Like Abraham and Joseph, we have a good hope through grace based on the promise of our God, the true and living God. Paul wrote in Romans 15, 13, Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. You know, it's this hope which Paul encouraged these believers at Corinth as well as every believer in every generation to lean on while they're in this present evil world. Paul stated it about as confidently and as simplistically as it could be stated. For the which cause I also suffer these things. What? For the gospel's sake. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed. Why are you not ashamed, Paul? For I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced, I'm persuaded, that in spite of the way things look, that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against this day. Now notice our text. Turn back over to our text. Look at, look at verse uh, 5. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 5. Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who hath also given unto us the earnest of his spirit. That Greek word translated by the English phrase, he that hath wrought, one word in the Greek. And it means to perform or to accomplish or to achieve or even better, to work out. That is to say, to do that from which something results. And that Greek word translated by the English phrase for the self-same thing, it's one word, just one word. Guess what that word is? Think about that. For the self-same thing. You know what the word is in the original? Himself. <laughs> Look it up for yourself. One word. That phrase is the word himself. Now put all that together. Now he that accomplished or performed or achieved or worked out things to do that which with, with which something results did it for what? For himself. You see that? He did it for himself. By these words, think about this. The Holy Spirit makes it clear to you and me that all the work and salvation, that is to say our justification, our sanctification, our resurrection, which is what he just talked about, or our future glorification, which is what he's about to talk about, all of it is performed or accomplished or worked out in God's elect by who? By God himself. All of it. Paul wrote to the, those at Philippi, and he said to them, said to you, I mean, I used to have religious people harp on me to this verse, Kenny. This, this part of it for sure. 
Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Here it is now. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What do they mean by that? Huh? What do your religious friends mean when they, they quote that to you? Work out your own salvation. You better get on the straight and narrow. Is that what that's talking about? Because he doesn't stop there. Because he says, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good will and pleasure. Paul stated the same thing to, to those at Ephesus. We'll get there next Sunday in our Sunday Bible class. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not of works. Hey, think about that, not of works. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Not of works. How are you going to reconcile those two? Huh? You got, we, we have to. We know there's no contradiction in the Word of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Because if it's our works, what are we going to do? We're going to boast. I don't care who you are. But we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. That word translated workmanship there in Ephesians chapter 2 means that which has been made are literally the works of God as a creator. Huh? God himself is the almighty source. It's the cause of the great change in the state of the elect sinner from a state of nature and unbelief to a state of grace and faith. And here's what's so important about this. The guarantee or the security that the work is his and not ours is conveyed in the next words that Paul states in this verse. Who hath given unto us the earnest of his spirit. Now, if you don't get anything else this morning, you get this. The Greek word translated to earnest. I think I've dealt with this before when we talk in Ephesians. It means money which in purchases is given as a pledge or a down payment that the full payment, full amount will subsequently be paid. In other words, what it, the, the earnest is a guarantee that everything that's required is going to be done. And he says to you and me, the elect of God, what's he done? He's given, freely given to us the earnest. Paul tells us that the same God who loved us before time, the same God who, who gave us to his son, chose us in Christ in everlasting covenant of grace, the same God who redeemed us from all our sins, how? By Christ's obedience unto death at Calvary. What's he done to you and me? He's freely given unto us his spirit. You say, well, I don't feel it. It's not something we feel. That's not. Look over, look over to Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verse 13, 14. 
Ephesians 1 verse 13, in whom you also trusted after that you heard the word of truth. When did they trust? After they heard what? Word of truth. Not a lie. The word of truth. And he even describes and defines this word of truth that you have to hear that unless you cannot, if you hadn't heard this, you ain't ever trusted. The gospel of your salvation. And whom also, after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Look at verse 14. Which is the earnest of our inheritance. How long? Until the redemption of the purchased possession. What's that? He not only purchased us spiritually, what else has he purchased? What have we been talking about in 2 Corinthians, those first few verses? What has he purchased too? He's purchased these vessels of clay. And that's what he means till the earnest, the earnest inherit the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. You might want to write there in a column in your Bible, write Romans chapter 8. I think it's like verse 22 or 20, it might not be, it might, might be like 14, 15, 16. I, it's not in my notes. This is off the top of my head. Let me see if I can get it right because I don't want to give you a wrong verse. He says this, and not only they, verse, verse 23 of Romans 8, not only they but ourselves also which have the first fruits of the Spirit. That's the earnest. Even as even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit. What's the adoption? Listen to this. The redemption of our body. The deliverance of our body. Yeah, that was Job's hope. Even though I die, and they put me in the ground, and my body turns back into dust, he said, I'm going to see him, my Redeemer, I know my Redeemer limit, and what am I going to do? I'm going to look on him with these eyes, not the eyes for nothing. Paul told the believers in Rome and you and me, for the, it, for the gifts and callings of God without repentance. You hear that? The gifts and callings of God without repentance. That word, the gifts, you know what it means? It's a Greek word. I love this Greek word. It's Charisma. Charisma is the way, probably the proper way that you pronounce it, which is used only two times in the New Testament. Or it's multiple times, but two times it's used in the New Testament, and it's translated by the word free gift. And it means, a fa listen to it, it means a favor which one receives without any merit of his own. Hear that? A favor that one receives without any merits of his own. The word translated calling means a divine invitation to God's salvation. So here's an important question. What's the divine source of God's calling his people to true faith and true repentance? How does that work? How does he call us? Listen to Paul. When fullness time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that are under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. What's the adoption? The redemption of our bodies. And because you are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of his Son 
into our hearts, your hearts, doing what? Crying, Abba, Father. So to get this right, God the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God's Son is sent into the heart of His people, and once the Spirit of God is sent into the heart of God's people, get this right, once the Spirit is in the child of God, He will never, you hear me? He will never leave. There's no possibility. Why? The gifts and calling of God is without Repentance, that word without repentance means to be repented of or to change one's mind. In other words, God's never going to change his mind about this. Once he, spends that, once he sends forth his spirit into your heart, it's done. It was done at Calvary, but it becomes mine in reality when he sends forth his spirit into my heart and causes me to cry, Abba, Father. Why Solomon said this, I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken away from it. And God doeth it that way, so that men should fear before him. I like what Robert Hawker commented on this verse. He said, if God the Holy Ghost has called us with an holy calling, and by his regenerating influence has made us new creatures in Christ, let us be always ready to ascribe all the glory to him, for this is the earnest and the sure pledge of his Holy Spirit. Now think about this. That self-same spirit who's the earnest of our salvation made it absolutely clear by Paul's words to those at Rome. Listen to this. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit. Listen to this. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. And everybody I know in religion, they're trying to figure out how the Spirit of God dwells in them. And you know what? They're looking for the wrong thing. Well, I know the Spirit of God dwells in me. Why? Because I go to church. Because I'm changed. Because I love more. And I, that ain't how you... The Spirit testifies to our spirit that what it was sons of God. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but listen, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But now get this right. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, and he does, we've established that, because the only way we know he dwells in us is what did he do? He sent forth his spirit into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So once we've cried, Abba, Father, where's he at? Where do we know he's at? If the spirit of his, him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit it dwells in you. I, I wanted to make this statement since I wrote it down Wednesday afternoon. That ought to be a great comfort to you and me who know and feel ourselves to be still sinners. Justified sinners. But still sinners. Can we grieve the Holy Spirit? 
Do we grieve the Holy Spirit? According to the Apostle Paul, we do. How do I know that we do? Because he says it, and grieve not the Holy Spirit. It's kind of like when John wrote, my little children, these things write unto you that what? Don't sin. But when you do sin, if you sin, what? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And thank God Paul didn't stop there when he said, and grieve not the Spirit. Tell him, warning those at Ephesus, warning you and me, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. How do we grieve Him? By our indifference, by our lack of love to His Word, our lack of love to Him, our lack of prayer, our lack of love to one another, our lack of study, all those things of, of disobedience and dishonor to our God. Surely we grieve Him. Most of the time. If we're honest. But He says this, don't grieve Him. But here, this same Spirit that we do grieve, whereby you are sealed. How long are you sealed? Until the day of redemption. <laughs> I'll tell you, this assurance, this assurance given to us by the indwelling of the Spirit is confidence in those born of God. Notice what he says in verse 6 and 7. Therefore, we are always confident. See that? We're confident. Knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent for the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. This confidence in the believing sinner, Paul uses the word twice. Uses it here and uses it down in verse 8. He says always confidence in verse 8. He says we are confident. You know what it is? It's an unceasing confidence. This word always means what? At all times. I'm always At all times, Paul said, when I'm in prison, I'm confident. When I'm at rest, I'm confident. When things are good, when things are bad, I'm confident. That word translated confident means to be a good courage, to be a good cheer, to be bold. And this confidence, it's founded on a principle that's unchangeable. This confidence that the child of God has, that Paul had, doesn't come from an unstable, uncertain cause, but it comes from that which is fixed and certain, namely, the covenant promises of God in Christ Jesus. You think about it, all the Old Testament saints, Abel, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Job, Lot, all of them, they believed and they lived and they died by those covenant promises concerning who? Messiah. Our Lord told those Jews who claimed Abraham to be their father, He said, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it. And he was glad. Those holy men and women in the Old Testament trusted in and relied on the covenant promises, walking by faith and not by sight. Because when you think about it, none of them, none of them ever saw Christ in the flesh. But like Abraham, what'd they all do? They'd all seen his day. Listen to you. These all died in faith. You look at the list, it's before that. It's Abraham all the way down to almost before Moses. He said, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of and embraced. And they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims 
on the earth. Like Abraham, they believed God. And listen to me, Paul did too. And you know what? We do too. Same faith that was in Abraham was in Paul is in all God's elect. Same faith. And we're, because of that, we're to be a good cheer, courage. To be a good cheer. Knowing that while we're living in these fleshly bodies, these fleshly tabernacles, you know what we're deprived of? You know what's missing in our life? The presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, isn't that what David says? He said, there's none on the earth that I desire beside this. Right? He said, who am I in heaven but what? The one I desire to be with me. Verse 8, we'll close. We are confident and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Paul says again that we, we, he includes himself and all Christ redeemed. All of us, what are we? We're confident. We're confident. In other words, we're to be cheerful in our present state, being assured of what? Our future happiness. Me and Pam were talking last night. I, I, I hate what I am. Don't you hate what you are? Seriously? Every moment I live, every moment I live, I am confronted with the fact that I have never done anything in a way whereby God could be pleased with me in the effort itself or whatever achievement I've ever made. But in spite of it all, you know what? I have his promise. What's he promised me? This is the promise that he hath promised. Eternal life. And this life is only found one place. It's not in the fact that I preach or I'm a good husband or a good father or a good friend or a good neighbor. This life is where? It's in the Son. He that hath the Son hath life. How do I know I have the Son? The Spirit testifies to me that I'm a son of God. It's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. It's reality. And to this Future happiness, Paul adds this, these words, in willing rather to be what? To be absent from the body, be present with the Lord. In other words, you know what Paul said of the two? He preferred to be what? Absent from the body. That is, what, he, what is he saying, be absent from the body? He, he would rather depart from this vessel of clay. Because what's holding me back from loving God, loving my neighbor, being what God would purpose, want me to be, if I could be? Huh? It's me. It's my nature. This earthly house, everything about my humanity. John Gill wrote this concerning Paul's words. He said, the interval 
between death and the resurrection is a state of absence from the body, during which time the soul is disembodied and exists in a separate state, not in a state of inactivity and sleep, for that would not be desirable, but a state of happiness and glory, enjoying the presence of God and praising of Him and believing and waiting for the resurrection of the body when both body and soul will be united together again, and after that there will be no more absence neither from the body nor from the Lord. To be absent from the body, what does He say? To be absent out of this body, where are we at? Where are we at? Huh? He talked about Paul, the writer of Hebrews talked about that we're called to the general assembly of just men made perfect. Where are they at? <laughs> Abraham was looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. Where's Abraham at? He and his body is in the ground, sure enough. Somewhere over there in that region of the world, which nobody knows about, Abraham's buried. But where's Abraham at? Absent from the body, present with the Lord. And see, the reason Paul was willing rather to be absent from the body was the promise that guaranteed him at the end of his earthly journey. What? Presence with the Lord. The promise of all those Christ redeemed being present with him was a promise that was made to who first? Who was the promise made to? It was made to Christ in everlasting covenant of grace. Listen to the writer of Hebrews. It said, For it became him for whom all things and by whom all things are all things in bringing many sons into glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one for this which cause he's not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare my name unto my brethren and in the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee and again I will put my trust in him and again behold I and all the children God hath given me. Our Lord spoke of that promise in his high priestly prayer. Father, now listen to this. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. I think, like I said, I put that word I think at the beginning of it because there's different kinds of interpretations and thoughts about it. But I think that all his spiritual seed, all those the Father gave him, all those he redeemed by his obedience unto death, I think that that was the joy that was set before our Lord Jesus Christ when he endured the suffering and shame. Listen to you. Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, which is that sin of unbelief, and let us run the race with patience that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Why? Because it was required for me despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
We read it a few moments ago in the book of Ephesians. Where were we at? We raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places where? In Christ Jesus. I tell you, what comfort and sweet, this sweet promise affords all God's redeemed when they come to that final Because all of us here, at some point in time, unless the Lord Jesus Christ comes back, we're going to all cross this last Jordan. And it, I tell you, it's frightening. I mean, I, I, you know, when, when, you, when you get word of somebody that's only four years, I, I mean, I know God's absolutely sovereign. You don't, don't, they will, Brother Richard thinks his life's in his own hand. I can walk to that path. I'm in a path four foot deep, and I can't make myself stay here one second longer than if I sat there and ate potato chips and ice cream for the rest of my life. But I'm going to try to be as healthy as I can be. But when somebody, I mean, just when you look at it humanly and you get a call like I did from Brother Bill this week, and he tells me the guy that's only four years older than me is gone. It confronts you again with your mortality. You know, those things just, my mama was 68 when she died. I'm, I'm almost as old as my mama was. You know, that's just three years more than what this is. And I think about that all the time. I think about my daddy. My daddy just turned 80. And you don't start thinking about these things till you start getting close to those golden numbers and you think, uh, Daddy was 80, I'm 65, that's 15 years. You remember January the 1st, 2023? We fixed to come up on January the 1st, 2024. We're in November. Does it feel like 11 months have passed? 15 years ain't long if I make it. I mean, I'm going to make it as long as, as the Lord's willed. But that's a frightening thought to this, this man. Because there's there's something mysterious about that crossing over. Even though we know we'll be fine, there's something in our humanity that just has an aversion to it. It's just, ugh. Our Lord said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would not have told you. He would never lie to us. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, what? You'll be there also. Those are the words we're to comfort one another with. When things are fine, comfort one another with a promise. When things have gone south, what do we do? We believe the same promise. If he redeemed my wretched soul and he's promised me the deliverance of my body, if I trusted him to save my soul, why in the world would I not trust him to deliver me out of this body of clay and give me grace that when he comes back or if he takes me from this life, that we'll get that which is rather willing to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. I stop right there and we'll come back next week and we'll pick up in verse 9. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed. Pray the Lord will bless that to our heart, mind, and understanding. He'll protect us, watch over us through this next week. Donald, if you would, dismiss us, please, sir.